Hurts by Lucy Ripchester and we read by Sophie Morris Shepherd. Lucy won a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award in 2013. She lives in Edinburgh, writes by day, and works by night as a private tutor and ESOL teacher. Her stories can be found in Finch's Script, Erotic Review, Valve, and the forthcoming edition of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Sophie has recently played Rebecca Locke in a series called The Paradox, a project which she helped devise as a short film in 2011. She is involved in several new writing initiatives in London. Her professional credits span the full spectrum of theatre. TV, commercials, film, voiceover, rehearse readings, and most recently, role play. Sophie. Where It Hurts by Lucy Ribchester. Is it the lights or is it the sound that makes me remember? The frost down at Blackfriars now seeps onto the land from the river so that it's no longer possible to tell where the divide comes. Catcalls and mist carry memories from this time last year. Donkeys are still giving sleigh rides. Children still skating on beef ribs tied with leather to the soles of their shoes. Old Punch is there, <laughs> knocking Judy for six while a fat man collects pennies from the people who watch. My belly takes a sudden heavy turn, and just in time I hook my hand down under it, bearing the weight. Oh, it aches and pulls. Somewhere near the art of me, a lump about the size of an unborn fist digs into my organ. Steady myself, steady my load, centre my balance, and keep walking through the snow. In the dark, a dark lamp glows, and the cold hint of a fishy smell says, I'm close to the bank. Dan Sicker, the student steps out into the path ahead of me. For a moment the world turns dizzy as I try to connect his face, which I've only seen before in the indoor glow of theatres and taverns and upstairs rooms with this cold new setting. He is sheltered by the tall poles of the bridge so I can only see Arthur's chin. The shadows slice a diagonal right through his handsome face. He reaches into his cloak and pulls out a tiny scrap of paper. Is it right? Of course it's right. His hand extends towards my belly. I almost claw it in an attempt to shoo it back. 
are you now? He snaps. I ignore I reach into the pannier of my skirt and pull out my own scrap of paper. This one, when opened, reveals a tiny gleaming pile of gold flakes, carefully shaved from a sovereign. I know these flakes will be transformed by one of Danska's friends into forged coins and spent very quickly on one of three things. Cider, opium, or wind. I don't care. I've given up caring for him or any of them. Fear replaced everything since she disappeared. It was a feeling of solidity under the feet that was strangest. More secure and even packed than rock. Even the fissures quickly filled. Meltwater froze into smooth mirrors. Part of the foam was wobbling all over the place between the stalks. Strung across London Bridge, salt beaten bunting. Torches had to be lit even during the day to counteract the harsh fog, fog that gripped in a pristine white clouds round bodies and stalls, giving everything a softened look of theatrical gorgeous. Every time it came around, there were customers galore. The frost, like the summer fairs, brought into the air, along with learned pigs and cats that could turn spits, an appetite for everyday life held no truck with. If you pass the cider man, the elves, boxing, the sad, cold donkey offering sleigh rides, if you continue past the hot fruit puddings, and cinnamon wine, and then turned left behind the printer's stall, ignoring the signs it said, bought on the Thames Eye, 1768. You'd have come across our stall. You'd have to tip the jobless waterman we paid to mind the door. But once inside, you could have been in Tavern Day. We soaked the cloth walls with fat to keep the eating, and then covered them with animal eye we borrowed from the tanner's man in return for, well, sometimes we'd get our own way, very easily. In the centre, our fire smouldered up through a chimney giving off a smoke light, heavy as clouds of opium, tickling round the clasps of body that lay, debreached, clapped together, in knots, huddled in privacy only by the snow. At that time, Rosanna couldn't earn. She was too far along, and a belly her size couldn't pull the wall over anyone, even those who liked their ladies fat. She sat in the corner and would say, when we asked if she wasn't cold, I have a stone wrapped me here and pat her stomach and rock it back and forth as if it was already born. We were surprised when the man asked for her. He looked drunk. 
Vinegar whiffs of very cheap port were his breath and coat. He was on the verge of taking up with any one of us, unbuckling himself as soon as he set foot in the tent, when he stopped and peered into the corner. I thought you might have been bewitched by Rosanna's face, for she is very pretty. Is. Was. But then he seemed to get a grasp of himself, and it was in this instant that I took note of him. He was very short, a very round man, neat and deep in the eyes, flabby and ruddy in the cheeks, with a hard frost of pock marks across his nose. He walked towards Rosanna and took her chin coolly in his hands, like she was a specimen. How far are you? Seven? Eight? Must? I don't know, mister. Doctor. At that word, we were all relaxed a little, and I realised then that there had been something uncanny in the way he looked at her. How much? he asked. Horrible moment. I thought he meant how much for the child. But then he stroked her along the jaw. Rosanna caught my eye and got her composure back, for she never missed a trick, and said, Two guineas! Which was double what the rest of us usually asked. But the man reached into his pocket and passed the coins. I tried to occupy myself with other matters, but when he lifted her skirts up right above her waist and brought his face down, close to where the skin was bloated and stretched, I couldn't help but notice. <laughs> Rosanna laughed, like it tickled her. And then she let loose a cry, and we all shut up, and the two customers running by the fire and all. Show me where it hurts, he said, and she pointed. If you come with me, he said, I can give you something for the pain. That was the last we saw of Rosanna, or a child. I remember Danska's words. I saw a girl today I thought you once knew. He was lolling off the side of his chair, the corner of his mouth pulled down and dribbling bitter trails of laudanum. No one I've ever known takes laudanum as much as medical students. Oh yes, I didn't pay much heed to his words at first. I could hardly hear them. There was a play going on downstairs and a racket being made by angels with greasy wings fighting in devils in papier-mâché masks. Yes, a girl who used to work with you 
on the Thames at the Frost Fairs. My spine froze. I was in a lecture. I bet you want to know where it was. He didn't wait for me to take the bet. His face was leery and red, the tails of his dank fringe on the dissection wing. He looks like the devil himself in the red candlelight. I kept it rolling. It was so very curious. The visiting man had managed to preserve. I didn't hear what he managed to preserve. My foot skidded across the wooden floor as I crossed his dancer's face and slapped him up to sitting. I slapped him three four times, and he looked me straight in the eye. Don't tell me lies. He was sober now. I don't tell you lies, he whispered. Who was he? This man? Danska shook his head, frightened of my rage now. I don't know, he visits from time to time. He has a speciality. What kind of speciality? He's, he's an obstetrician. We're told he's the best in his field. And his name? But Danske didn't know his name. Only that he came once a fortnight to the School of Anatomy. Always with a fresh specimen. And I loved. The shore retreats as I trudge on, up towards Spitterfield, where I can already smell the wine and the coffee. Ask for the Spaniard, Dansker had said. I pull out a scrap of paper and make sure I've read the address properly. The place on Rose Lane is small, and hard to find, and I thought I knew every tavern east of the Fleet River. The weather is whipping up a storm, and while I wait for the Spaniard to come to the door, a woman passes by, and without warning, grasps hold of my two cold hands in hers. Don't you catch my death, my love, in your state. I smile and say, it's all right. I have a stove wrapped to me and I touch the enormous swelling of my belly. Her eyes crease and she moves on just as the lane ahead of me darkens with the shape of a big black-haired man. I was to ask for the doctor he sizes up my silhouette, looks both ways, and takes me by the arm inside. There, his eyes, two flints in the candle dark of the chamber. I try to find something different in them this time, now that I know what he is. 
but there is only his cool indifference, his professional mask. Someone is cooking something downstairs. Tavern food. The cheapest dregs of me. He pulls a rag from a dirty bed and gestures me down. How did you find me? He asks. And for a moment, I think he knows who I am. What? I am here for But then I see that he can't even meet my gaze. He can't look at me as he makes a show of pouring a glass of some liquid on top of a chest. He makes a show of taking out his sharp instruments from his filthy <coughs> doctor's case. Danske, the medical student, he doesn't recognise the name. I look around the room, wondering if this is where he bought Rosanna, or if this is where he sleeps, or simply where he does his evil deeds. Aside from the bed and the chest, there is no furniture. But there is a stain on the floor that chills me to the spleen to look at it. Now, he leans into my face, bringing the candle closer. Show me where it is. He has a long, pointing shard of silver in his hand. I wonder if he will try to drug me, if he drugged Rosanna first, if he drugs any of them, or if he simply still sees them as something outside their souls, ripe with mysteries, tapestried threads of hollow veins and brittle bones and medical advancement and his own glory. He eases me down, reaches his hand into the heavy sack of my belly, lifts up the secret folds of my skirt. And there he stops as he finds underneath not the swollen, pregnant skin he seeks, but instead a thick wadding of bundled cloth. A ball a folded cloak. Quickly I seize upon the knife that is stuffed in there and has been jabbing its handle into my organs. And I stab, and I stab, and I stab again as the tears of thickened blood spring from below his waist. And the fat and the flesh give his unholy cry. His crumpling tells me that yes, I show him. I show him where it hurts. Thank you, Sophie.
Before our final devious tale, a few for your eyes only notices. Our last Lions League of the year will be on the 10th of December and will be a festively themed snow and stars. Please do join us. There may even be mince pies. Uh, you'll find themes for next year, along with surveillance tapes of tonight's event, at the Liars website. If you can't wait quite that long, get yourself down to the Ivy House in Nunhead tomorrow evening, where as part of National Short Story Week, Arachne Press authors, including moi, uh, will be reading stories on war, peace, and remembrance. And so, our final story of the night will be The Creation by Paul Sweeten, read by Cliff Chapman. Paul has published fiction in Ambit and Flash, the international short story magazine. His essays have appeared in Persuasions, the Jane Austen Journal, the Journal of the Short Story in English, and the Oxonian Review. He is a co-editor of The Harlequin, a new literary quarterly. Cliff is Lester-born, Manx raised, and available with a number of bonus features, including theatre, voice acting, audiobook directing, idents, music, videos, short films, and commercials. He is represented by Meredith Westwood Management and is easily won over by Red Wine. <coughs> Cliff! The Creation, by Paul Sweeten. I begin every morning lying in the same double bed, but I will later tell my students never to write a story in which a man wakes up and goes through a routine. Don't start that way. It's tedious, particularly when the routine is unremarkable. But then I'll tell them to make their writing faithful to perception faithful to their own lives, and sometimes I'll mention the name of the writer who first said that. But sometimes I won't, and they'll go away thinking it was me. <laughs> Over breakfast, I work through a deck of vocabulary cards. I recite aloud the definition of five words I've never heard before, then test myself with the cards face down on the counter. Later in the day, I'll use one of the words in conversation. They're mostly unemployable. Words like occupation, defenestrate, polemic. Yet I'll take a certain pleasure in the bewildered looks of academics when I call upon for a definition. Occupation, I'll say. It's, it's the practice of eating or drinking while lying down. <laughs> After breakfast, I read the headlines from the first six pages of the Times. If there's a woman in my bed, I'll complete the Times crossword using any answers that fit, and leave the paper in a place where she'll notice. If I'm alone, I'll search the internet for synopses of a classic novel. Today... Frankenstein, before walking to my bookcase to find a copy, where I'll read a paragraph to get an idea of the style. Later at work, I may claim to a colleague that I've been commissioned to write a new introduction. 
this type of lie has previously led to a conversation with a publisher and to my actually writing a new introduction to The Immoralist in Noble and West's modern classic edition released in 2008. I have never read The Immoralist. <laughs> I teach writing and performance studies in the Evergreen Building on Westmoreland Street in Cambridge. The faculty is part of Hay College and has nothing whatsoever to do with the University of Cambridge. Still, the school has a reasonably good reputation among writing, academ uh, writing academies, and there is a fair chance I would lose my job if anybody found out that I had never read a book from cover to cover in my entire life. <laughs> Dr. Robert Trott teaches dramaturgy. He's older than me, 37. But my salary is £6,000 a year higher than his because I hold a senior professorship. Lewis Rees teaches from page to screen. He's my age exactly, 35. An ex-Eton boy with a degree from King's and someone who earns £9,000 a year less than I do. The three of us are drinking outside Hayes Union Bar watching undergraduates at lunch. Reese balances a lit cigarette on the ashtray, then opens his work bag, something which is trying to be a satchel with its buckles and initial engraved plates. He makes a deliberate effort to expose his copy of Truth on Stage, an anticipated collection of essays which doesn't go on sale for another month. Advanced copy, he says, personalized dedication. He shows us the introduction in which he has underlined a passage and written NO in the margin, <laughs> then drawn a circle around the word. Here's the trouble with this place, he says. The four-year tide washes in and takes with it those passingly engaging conversations you mistook for meaningful connections. Middling men are dangerous in a place like this. They have something to prove to these overpaying underachievers. None of them are in awe, you know. None of them care. We offer courses in mine, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Trot removes his glasses. There's nothing wrong with mine, Lewis. Oh, yeah, he says. Who's your favourite mine? It's quiet for a moment. Reese fans his own cigarette smoke. That reminds me, he says, prologues. Don't do prologues. Call it chapter one, then realise you have to cut it all together. Trot laughs. That's a fact. What about epilogues? Worse. They're like filming the clean-up in a porno. <laughs> your epilogue is your DVD special feature your supplementary material. Save it for a centenary edition, or better yet, save it for readings. Build some mystique, a little bootleg. Settle down, Lewis, I say. Prologues and epilogues are a great way to frame a narrative and folk historical context. Frankenstein had a prologue. A preface, actually, then a kind of prologue after that. The whole novel is an essay in the inner workings of narrative structure. 
Frankenstein is a structural nightmare, Rhys says. Worse than Lear. Worse than Finnegan's Wake. There's no apostrophe in Finnegan's Wake, I tell him. Did you know that? I didn't say it with an apostrophe. <laughs> I couldn't tell, says Trot. Reese says it again. Sounds the same. <laughs> of course it sounds the same. We each take a turn saying it. <laughs> Reese drags on his cigarette, so I lean back in my chair to show him I disapprove, though he probably doesn't notice. Trot says, why are we talking about Frankenstein? The product of Frankenstein's experiment is often called the monster, I say, but I prefer to call it the creation. Deep, says Reese. I can't take much more of this, so I announce that I'm going to the library, when of course I'm not. I go instead to Christ's College and walk through the Porter's Lodge without anyone stopping me. I do this several times a week. At the back of the college is a small court with Gothic buildings on three sides. I sit in an alcove facing the main library and empty the contents of my bag onto the cold stone. The task at hand is to peruse editions of old literary magazines that I might plagiarise for my novel in progress. <laughs> I like to work here, as I hold deep contempt for people who use coffee houses to publicly advertise that they are working on a novel. <laughs> or having coffee in the way these people do. As if coffee is a necessary supplement to their cosmopolitan lives, which, as it goes, are unashamedly taking place in backward market towns. <laughs> On the other side of the court, two students are walking across the lobby. One of the students is Kaylee Knox, a girl I've seduced on four occasions and slept with twice. She's walking with Rhiannon something, whom I once tried to seduce without success. Rhiannon is more attractive than Kaylee, so seeing them walk together is irritating. It's as if someone means to remind me of my limitations by displaying these girls side by side. I stare blankly across the court, unable to extinguish the anguish of my past failures, until I see, over by the archway, a group of Japanese tourists on a tour of the college. They point in my direction and pause to take pictures of me, assuming what they see is a Cambridge academic deep in the meditation of his study. An insulting relief passes through me. Later that afternoon, I'm in London, having lunch with Michael Dirk, my literary agent. Dirk prefers to talk business in restaurants, though his reluctance to pay, or even to spit the bill, is beginning to annoy me. He's chosen La Ferme in the new retail complex in Putney. It's one of those high-priced lunchrooms with fake rustic furniture and undersized portions. It wants me to believe it's genuinely continental, but I know the chef is from Peterborough. <laughs> Dirk orders a bottle of wine before we talk about my novel. 
The typescript has been at his agency for six months, so I'm beginning to lose patience with his inability to get it published. <clears throat> Come back from Pandora, he says. They're not looking to buy literary right now. Is that what they said? I'm sorry. They wanted you to know. They really liked it. I thought we were at an advanced stage with Pandora. I've been telling people it's at an advanced stage. A skinny waitress comes with the wine. She pours a shot for Dirk, who drinks it before saying, Very nice. The response is, That's fine, I tell him. She's not asking you if you like the wine. I turn to face the waitress serving at the table next to us. She's significantly more attractive than the girl we've been given. <laughs> when I turn to Dirk, he's holding his glass like a coffee mug. Jesus, Dirk. I say, use the stem. It keeps your fingerprints off the glass and keeps the wine chilled. You don't chill red wine, he says, smiling to the waitress. You drink it room temperature. Cell temperature, I correct him. The waitress goes away. Here's where we are, Dirk says. The novel. I don't know where else I can turn with it. What about Cauldron, Whistler, Rupert League? Try the American presses. You don't want Europeans to read the novel. I want readings, I say. I want debates, interviews, awards. I want pink champagne every night for the rest of my life. But I want it in London. London or New York. So... We need another edit. Do we? Look, he says. It's time you moved out of the counties. Where is it you stay in? Cambridge. That place rots the mind. There's no excuse for another tweed novel about quads and bicycles with people walking around quoting Latin. Don't start thinking that is. If you want London, then at least move here. Everybody moves here eventually. You think that commuting makes yourself some kind of railway gent. I'm barely listening to this. Dirk looks at the menu while I defend myself, but I imagine he's not listening, only trying to avoid looking at me. Across the room, our skinny waitress is presenting a cork to an old man who smells it before nodding his head. His guests laugh and make fun of his sophistication. They seem unaware that he has just exposed himself as someone who knows absolutely nothing about wine. Even the waitress looks impressed. I wipe my forehead with a napkin. I'm pent up, I say. It's my research. It's this life of the mind. Your research. I've no idea what I'm talking about or what I mean to convey <laughs> with the slow nod I give in response to this question. Dirk tries to look sympathetic. What are you researching? 
he says. I feel like telling them the truth. Nothing. But instead, I say, not very convincingly, Hamlet. Hamlet, he says. No wonder he looked like shit. <laughs> I'm looking at the grave digging scene. You know, um, Act 5, Scene 1. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. Dirk looks confused. Just that scene. That's your research. I'm too tired to freestyle about Hamlet, so I nod again, but get the feeling he knows I'm lying. He says, without looking up from his meal, Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him Horatio. I stop listening. Dirk is saying something like, Metropolitan books are over. Bloomsbury hardly exists. You have to write the commuter novel. Something structured like a train line. I watch his lips move. I hear his voice. But I'm able in the depth of my haze to ignore the words entirely. Out of the window, a group of girls dressed in hockey skirts are crossing the road. They look 18, maybe older. And as I stare at the neat row of their patterned socks, then at my own reflection in the window, ultimating my focus in a kind of stupor, I have the ridiculous impression that I am among these girls, like an apparition. The window shows I'm greying already, wrinkling even, beginning to look entirely unlike myself. The girls go on laughing, and, and as I'm sitting there in the restaurant, I'm reminded of a former version of myself, uh, a teenager who watched laughing girls in a bar while a conversation about Milton passed him by. As Dirk goes on talking, I imagine being the type of man who is not interested in being a type of man. Rain falls on the window. One of us says, we'll send the novel to Max Beaker at Cauldron. It's time people found out who you are. 